Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, much like Seattle and King County, the state government wants to build a bureaucracy for the homeless. The fight over masking requirements gets a Spokane City Councilman censured, and the U.S. takes out the ISIS leader in Syria. Retired General Barry McCaffrey on what went right and what could have gone better during the raid. But first, the legislative session continues and deadlines to consider bills are fast approaching. And one of the bills that lawmakers are looking at would limit Governor Inslee's powers in a state of emergency. Now, we've talked about this before, but joining me once again is Fox 13 News reporter Matt Markovich. And what's different this time around? Because we saw Republican support last year for something like this, but now Democrats are jumping on board? Yes. So that's the big difference compared to last year. You have a bill, uh, Senate Bill 5909, authored by a Democrat who w- will most likely make it through the Senate on its way to the House and could eventually wind up on the governor's desk. That's what people are thinking. And this is authored by a Democrat, not the Republicans. And obviously, Republicans are on board for this. And now many, many Democrats are agreeing with the Republicans. And and, and most likely, most the, the general prevailing feeling in the legislature by most lawmakers is that there needs to be some check and balance on the governor's emergency powers. Now, Senate Bill 5909, which just passed the state Senate committee on Wednesday and will move forward with a recommended passage uh, recommendation as it moves down the uh, chain here. Um, this bill would limit the governor's emergency powers to 90 days. Uh, and then after 90 days, the legislature would have to approve or disapprove. And if the legislature is not in session, then you have as you know, it's known as the four corners, the leaders of the Senate and the House, the majority and minority leaders, and so they would have to agree and basically say yes or no on the governor's mercy power or curtail the order or make him redo it. He just can't simply extend it as, as, as the case has been for the last two years on some of his orders. He just couldn't do that anymore. So, so this looks like uh, there is going to be a cap on the governor's powers uh, going forward. But haven't we seen the Four Corners approve extensions of the emergency throughout the COVID pandemic? Yes, and the governor has uh, actually been <laughs> quite vocal pointing that out, that his extension, his orders have been approved 26 times during the 26 years by the legislature, uh, Four Corners, the major leaders. So, And he has said publicly that he doesn't think this bill is necessary uh, and but that's about as far as he's gone. He says it just it doesn't need to have it doesn't need to be there. So so, again, we're going to see how these other bills progress. There's another one authored by the Republicans that asked for a 60 day limitation. And there's a little some changes. But again, that's authored by the Republicans and most likely will uh, die at, on the uh, Senate or House floor. Uh, so but this one right now with 90 days looks like it'll go through. So without siding with uh, Governor Inslee or the Democrats or the Republicans, I mean, if the Four Corners have already been approving the extension of the emergencies, how does this bill change anything? You know, that's a, it's a good question, but Governor hasn't had to go to the Four Corners to seek approval uh, for any kind of extension. I think I, I, I think that is the difference here, is that now those Four Corners I guess maybe the right thing is to say they haven't been able to approve. They didn't need to approve his emergency orders during the last two years. They were just informed of his emergency orders and basically signed off on them. They didn't have any power to say no. 
this bill would give them the power to say no we don't want to extend this uh, emergency order anymore. But what about the rank and file? You're talking about four people, the head of the Republicans, the head of the Democrats in both the House and the Senate. I, I wouldn't imagine that the rank and file would be too happy that only these leaders are making these decisions without a full vote or committee debate. Well, but that's what's going to have to happen. If you have an emergency order that takes place and it's not when the legislative session is in session we're not when legislators aren't in olympia you have to have some representation of the house and senate so the agreement is to have those four people when it's not uh, a legislative session and that's going to be a majority of the time during the year frankly uh those people act as the check and balance to the governor and again the the caucuses the democratic and republican caucuses can can meet with their leaders and make a recommendation like off off time, you know, when the, when the legislative session is not in session, they can meet with their leaders and suggest this is what we want to do. But, but the four corners, as you say, they will now have the authority to make a check and balance on the governor's emergency powers. The other thing we wanted to talk about, too, is this lying bill. Governor Inslee has floated mm-hmm. the idea of legally punishing, making it a criminal act to lie about the 2020 election. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's an oversimplification, but what I can't imagine this is getting a, a warm reaction from the legislature. Well, it just passed a, a, a very important vote at a Senate committee by party line votes, three to two Democrats in favor of, yes, let's, let's, we're in favor of this idea. And the Democrats who spoke at the committee before they voted, they said they had a tough decision with this vote saying that there's a lot of problems with it. They realize that, um, but they went ahead and did it anyway. And it was a party line vote, three to two. It's a small committee uh, to move it forward, to make a recommendation to pass this bill that the governor really wants. But it's, it has to go to the rules committee. And then if the rules committee likes it, then it moves on to the uh, floor of the Senate. Now, Governor Inslee, as you know, Jeff, this is a bill that he's actually proposing for the state of Washington, but it goes beyond the state of Washington. He's actually playing, in my mind, to a national audience on this bill that he was going, he's going to show that here in Washington state, we're not going to put up with election result lying and and make it a criminal offense. And that's what this bill would do. It would make it a misdemeanor. And it's really just targeting elected officials. People who are elected, who in a way have uh, a voice, just a First Amendment right to say what they want, but they don't have the right, as many people say, to yell fire in the theater. And that's what this, what the, the bill is akin to, that you're basically yelling about election results uh, that are not correct uh, and want to make that a punishable offense in Washington State. Well, it's not often that lying is a crime. There are exceptions, perjury, fraud, lying to Congress. But in, in this case, lying to whom? Just saying something to the public in a, in a, in a commercial, in an advertisement? What, what is he looking to curb exactly? I think it's a, a public appearance that people, are, that people can see. If a politician, elected official stands on a podium somewhere and says, the, that Donald Trump is the duly elected president of the United States, according to all the <laughs> ballots and the, and the Electoral College and everything, that's not true. Uh, that's a punishable offense in Washington state. So 
you know, lying, that's the evidence is, is if you go to the court, who's to say it's an official result of an election? Well, if, if a certain elected bodies approve it, it becomes law in a way that, and, and we, and the laws are made every day and laws are, are broken every day. If the legislature says that Donald Trump, I should say the electoral college says that Donald Trump is not president, that's what you have to go by in court. And if someone disputes that in Washington state, they stand on their soapbox in Washington state and somebody heard him say that you can take them to court. Well, I'm not a constitutional lawyer by any means, but this seems to have first amendment problems up the wazoo, I suppose. I mean, uh, yeah. You've got and, and, freedom of speech, freedom of uh, assembly, all sorts of issues here. I can't imagine that this would survive a court challenge. Well, when Governor Inslee first proposed this in the original draft, according to constitutional experts that he used, that had huge holes in it, just like you're saying. It was poorly written, they're saying. Lawrence Tribe, a professor back east who is a well-known constitutional law attorney, Okay. I won't say if he was hired by the governor's office. I'm not sure if there was payment involved, but he helped rewrite the bill. And now the bill, apparently, according to these constitutional ex- experts, can withstand a court challenge. You know, it, this is a bill that's destined on its very first case, as you know, Jeff. As soon as someone is accused of a misdemeanor of lying, it's going to go all the way through the court system, most likely all the way to the state Supreme Court. It's what, just one of those bills that has to be challenged, has to be tested by the courts for its validity. This is where it's going to start. And, to, and uh, on Wednesday, the Senate committee moved it forward one step closer to the governor's desk. So if I say an alien from the planet Zanzibar won the 2020 election, I would be in violation of this law if it becomes law. If you're an elected official. Yes. Wow. Mm-hmm. So now you, as, as Jeff Posner, is standing on a soapbox saying that, you know, that's not a crime. This is targeting elected officials who are uh, giving false information about a election result that has been certified. That's it in a summary. Well, we'll have to see how far that goes. I can't imagine very far, but uh, Matt Markovich, don't go anywhere. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, state lawmakers adding additional bureaucracy when dealing with the homeless. That's on the way when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Well, if you scroll through past episodes of this show, you will find about two years ago an episode entitled Bureaucracy for the Homeless. That's when Seattle and King County decided to create the Regional Homelessness Authority, a new layer of government, hoping to deal with the homelessness crisis. Now it looks like the state is trying to do the same thing, at least when it comes to public rights of way. Joining me once again is Fox 13 reporter Matt Markovich, and this has to do with state highways. It does. Uh, according to the governor's office, there are 1,700 unsanctioned homeless campments uh, along state right-of-ways in the state of Washington. That's a lot. I mean, you just can talk about how many you see in Seattle, but this is that shows you that there are a lot of tents around highways, the off-ramps, the embankments, um, right along the highways, up and down the state, especially along the I-5 corridor. So, so the governor is basically finally taking responsibility in many people's eyes of who's camping on state land. The people are on along the highways there. Uh, up until now, the cities 
have had the responsibility of managing the homeless on state right-of-ways along along I-5 and along I-90. It's up to the cities like Seattle and Tacoma and Bellevue and every other city that's along the highway to deal with the homeless that's actually on state property. Uh, it's been a complaint for cities for years. So now the governor is proposing to have a new division within the Department of Social and Health Services uh, that deals with the homelessness on long highways. But it's not what you think. It's not a division right now as it's being set up to go out and do the outreach and place people into housing. Maybe eventually, but this is basically setting up as a new bureaucracy within DSHS. And with this bill that the governor is promoting that's now going through the state Senate, there's no money attached to the bill. There's no appropriation, no funding for getting people into housing. It's just to set up this bureaucracy. And there's no money for, as it stands right now, DSHS to set up this, uh, this group with this new division to handle people who are living on the highway. So, so without funding, what can they do? You like the term unfunded mandate, and this is what it kind of looks like to me. Now, the governor is proposing a $300 million plus plan to deal with the state's homelessness. And there's discussion in the legislature that some of that money could go to this new division inside DSHS. But there's uh, the bill that's now going through the state Senate. There's no money tied to it. So it's kind of an assumption right now on on the part of legislatures that the money will come in. But basically what this is doing is setting up a, like we were talking about a new bureaucracy, I guess you could call it a King County homelessness authority within the state, within DSHS that will manage the, the agreements the state has with cities or try and work with the cities on how to handle the homeless that are on the highways within these cities that the cities have had to do basically on their own. So it's it coordination, like, not so much a plan. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, it's to coordinate, you know, and move contract, or maybe create contract with the idea that eventually there will be some funding grant money that the, the state can give cities to help them and deal with the homeless along the highways because, or this, or DS, DSHS would set up kind of like their own hope team. The hope team is the outreach team that the city of Seattle uses to go into the camps well, the state could possibly set up its own outreach team and do its own outreach on state lands. Um, it's something the cities have been saying needed to be done years and years ago. So there's some movement now that it, but it's it's several years in arrears basically that the that the state's finally acknowledging that there's a big problem with camps along state highways, and the cities are tired of dealing with it. So there's a it's like a step in the right direction for many, um, but at the same time there's questions about it i mean even senator republican senator phil fortunato question does this mean that all you need to do is set up a tent along a highway and you'll, you'll get free housing that was his question and even the king county seattle king county coalition on homelessness want, make, wants to make sure that this is not a what I'll, i call a sweeping agency they're not just there to remove people from the the camps on the highways without any housing so two things and let's start with this one how is it the DSHS doesn't already have a program to deal with the state's homelessness? I don't have an answer to that question. I don't know what uh, that question at all. Uh, answer to that question. Um, DSHS, you would think, would have something like that because that is the one agency that handles the homeless uh, on the highways. WashDOT is not equipped to doing that. WashDOT has said repeatedly throughout the years that 
it's not their job to handle the homeless on the highways. They're to manage the byways, make sure the infrastructure is there, not deal with people that are living along the highways, which that shouldn't be a, that shouldn't happen in the first place. And that kind of leads me to my second question, who ultimately is going to be responsible for the removal of the encampments, the cleanup and the getting the people that are in these camps into housing. Is that going to be DSHS? Is it going to be the cities, the state somehow? Who's responsible under this plan? Well, it's it's in formulation. Uh, under this plan, it's basically just to set up this bureaucracy to start handling these kind of questions. Um, I think the cities for years have said directly to the state and through WashDOT, this is your land. This is state property. And you need to manage the state property. We have our hands filled full dealing with homeless camps in other parts of our own region, like in city parks and in county parks. So I think this is a welcome sign by many cities up and down the I-5 corridor that they see the start state start moving, taking some action. But as you know, Jeff, it's all about dollars and whether or not you're going to put dollars behind a plan to actually take action. And right now, there's some question about the dollars. There's some questions like you just said about the functionality of what this division within DSHS will do. Um, but that's where it sits. It's claiming responsibility, but not the, not claiming the whole enchilada. So have they been looking at the Seattle King County Regional Homeless Authority as a bit of a model? Is, is that what they're doing? Too early in the stages to answer that question. They haven't even set this up. So in a way, it would be like that, where they want to manage... Uh, agreements between the cities and the state on areas where there are perennial homeless camps along the highway, um, and then work on grants to give money to the cities to handle that, or in some cases, have DSHS go out and do the outreach themselves and get them in, people into housing. Uh, and, and as you know, the most expensive part of that is you can move people off a of camp you know, along the highway, but where are you going to send them? And you got to have housing for that. So is it the state's responsibility to put them into state-funded temporary housing? Or are they going to pay for someone from, say, that's living along I-5 in Seattle and pay Seattle to put that person into a tiny house? Those questions are not answered yet. Well, and, and to give you kind of an any kind of an estimate on a timetable, you look at the, the closest analogy, the King County Regional Homeless Authority, Homelessness Authority. It's been, what, two, three years, and still yeah. they haven't really done anything? It's been more than three years since it was announced. Uh, and as of right now, they're just still getting up and running. Uh, they're basically trying to manage the contracts uh, where of hotels and shelters and where people are going to go. But again, they're not involved in really right now involved in removing people. They, they're helping with where they're going to go. But the decision to actually remove a camp, that's still on the city's shoulders wherever those camps are so yeah they're in their infancy and it's been three years well and and you talk about the removal of the encampments that's only one part of it as you said they have to have somewhere to go and ultimately the only solution to the homelessness crisis is additional housing stock additional affordable housing stock Mm -hmm. how how is i mean is the county and the city doing anything with the regional uh, homelessness authority let alone the state with this new plan yes there's lots of money going into affordable housing and temporary housing but it's not nearly enough for what is estimated about the homeless population that's out in the streets as well as the hidden homeless the people who are couch surfing at a friend's place things like that uh, there's not nearly enough housing in the pipeline 
you know, we're talking an estimate of $2 billion just in the city, excuse me, in King County that was estimated to handle just enough the housing issues with the homeless they know about. So it's just a monumental problem. Now, if you have throw in 1,700 unsanctioned homeless camps uh, throughout the state, and that's just along the highways. That's a big problem for big cities and small cities throughout the state. So what's the next step? Is this just still being debated? Is this going to become law? Is the governor expected to sign this? Well, this passed a Senate committee, the idea behind this, the governor's proposal, uh, by a seven to three to one vote, basically uh, a bipartisan passage, I should point out. Both Republicans and Democrats supported the idea. Uh, three Republicans were against it. One person didn't make, make, one didn't want to make any recommendations. So what that means is now it moves on to another committee in the Senate, and they'll debate the rules about it. Then it could get to the uh, Senate floor, um, and then it has to go to the uh, the House side. So it's got a long ways to go. This idea, uh, but again, this is a government. Uh, this is a governor's proposal, and so it's got a little special asterisk to it because this is what he wants. So we're going to see, we're going to be following it for you. All right, Matt Markovich from Fox 13 News. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. When we come back, a Spokane City Councilman censured for refusing to wear a mask when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Over in eastern Washington, the Spokane City Council this week has censured one of its own members for not wearing a mask. Republican Jonathan Bengal thinks masks are more about control than public health. So he tells KXLY-TV he'll continue to refuse to wear a mask inside City Hall and at council meetings. This is a decision that I feel good about because I want to represent those who feel as if they don't have a voice. But that is a violation of state law. Then the city of Spokane could be fined up to $14,000 for its actions. So the rest of the council voted 5-2 to two to censure him. Democrat Zach Zapone. I put forward this resolution to ask the mayor to enforce law to prevent taxpayers from footing the bill. Now it's up to the mayor to enforce any disciplinary action, but Republican Mayor Nadine Woodward isn't sure if she even has the power to restrict a council member. She says the problem should have been resolved within the council itself. My initial response is a disappointment um, that we got to a place where we were censuring or council was censuring uh, one of our council members before a more robust discussion. Now, in a formal letter, the Washington State Joint Agency Compliance Team reminded both the mayor and the council of the state's masking requirements. Joining me now is Caitlin Knapp, who's been covering this for KXLY over in Spokane. And, and first off, give us a little background. Who is Jonathan Bingle? So Jonathan Bingle, he was just elected into this position about a month ago. So not even a month into this, he's being censured, claiming, as you stated, he's taken a principal stand over this mandate. And we just found out about this a week ago, getting a statement from his office talking about this principal stand. He thinks it's a good idea to push back against the issue. And he said that he's been open about this since the beginning during his election campaign and saying he's speaking for the people. And that is what he says he is doing up to this point. Did he make campaign promises to this effect? Um, Not that I know of in my conversation with him. We did not discuss mass mandates, but um, yeah, he he may have. He may have not. But I'm not uh, clear about that. Does he have a history of opposing covid precautions? Uh, Well, when I was personally covering election night, I was in the room with um, a lot of people and nobody. Most of the people weren't wearing a mask, including 
Jonathan Bingle. So as far as him going against COVID protocols, not sure, but we were inside a hotel and a room and he was not wearing a mask. Beyond just the COVID precautions of wearing a mask, do we dare ask where he stands on vaccines and some of the other orders that have been implemented by Governor Inslee in the state legislature? I believe we had another reporter reach out to him in regards to his vaccination status, but I do not believe that we got a response in terms of that request. So what about this other councilman, Zach Zapone, who kind of led the charge against him? Yeah, he was very passionate when he was speaking on Monday night, talking in the briefing session, saying that he he claims that uh, Bengal is breaking the law, but also using his office to break the law as well. And Zapone and Bengal were kind of going tit for tat here, asking if Bengal would wear a mask inside City Hall. Bengal said no, and Bingle then claimed Sabone was not masking up at a bar with friends. So during this meeting, it was really tit for tat and almost uh, it seemed like attacking each other at one point. Eastern Washington is a solidly conservative region. How is it that the Republican has become rebuked by his colleagues? Um, well, for as far as the city council goes, a lot of them tend to be a little bit more to the left. They are Democratic. But, you know, I think I'm not sure as far as the numbers in his district and his zone, as far as leaning a little bit more Republican. But at the same time, the voters spoke and they wanted him in office for whatever reason, whether that is pushing it back against COVID mandates or even something as, you know, simple as the housing crisis going on right now. This isn't something that we haven't seen before. Down in Franklin County, we had Clint Didier, another solid conservative who was the county commissioner and decided that he was not going to wear a mask at county commissioner meetings. Now, you had the rest of the commission walk out saying that any action could be deemed illegal because it was an illegal meeting for him not wearing a mask. Have we seen any legal pushback with regards to uh, the Spokane City Council and Jonathan Bingle's actions? Well, as far as City Council, no. Besides censuring him, they claim that they want the mayor to do something about it and banning him. Well, just on Tuesday, city administrators are pointing to the city code. They say that the mayor doesn't have the right to ban him. The spokesperson said that the mayor only can control facilities and shut off key card access, but it's actually up to the council to ban Bingle if they want to. And the mayor said she would like Bingle to wear a mask and follow city policy. And the city attorney has sent a letter to Bingle. What's in that letter? The mayor would not say. She says she doesn't know what's in that letter claiming attorney client privilege. So as far as uh, legal standing in this it looks like something is happening but what it is we don't know right now now it seems interesting though that the council decided to ask the mayor to discipline a council member if i'm not mistaken the city of spokane has a strong mayor format separation of powers it seems pretty basic that the mayor wouldn't be able to do any disciplinary action against a, a legislative member yeah and as far as them making this resolution and urging the mayor to do that if they consulted with the city attorney before then or legal it doesn't sound like they did if they're asking or urging the mayor to enforce his mandate and passing a resolution it just seems weird to put this resolution forward if the mayor can't do anything about it again citing city code that the mayor doesn't have the right to ban him because of you know the branch nadine woodward the mayor is actually a republican as well where does she stand on this issue uh, with regards to masks not necessarily the the reaction to it or the disciplinary action but 
she's of the same party as Jonathan Binkle. Well, I actually asked her that question on Monday if she would like to see uh, Jonathan Bingle wear a mask. And she said, yes, she would like Jonathan Bingle to wear a mask and follow city policy. It is the law in the state of Washington. And she said that she would like to see him wear a mask. Speaking of the law, are we expecting the city to be fined? You mentioned in your report, $14,000 is what they could face. Yeah, that's a pretty big fine as far as what uh, the labor and industries is going to do. Not sure right now. There is an investigation. It may happen. It may not happen. But that $14,000 comes out of the budget and that is taxpayer money that would go to this fine. So as far as what LNI is going to do, it's really just a wait and see right now. What is the council doing next? Uh, as far as what the council is doing next, not sure if they're going to try to have a conversation. That was one of the biggest issues with Councilman Michael Cathcart, who voted against the censure, is they he claims that city council members didn't bring this up until the afternoon. They were holding it back and they suspended the rules. So at this point, if they are going to have a conversation, not really sure right now if they're going to let legal handle it because the city attorney, Mike uh, Mike Ormsby, gave this letter to um, Jonathan Bengal. Is there going to be action from that? Really don't know right now. What's been the response from Bingo? We heard why he's doing this, but has he said anything about the the efforts to discipline him or the vote itself? So after the censure, I reached out to him in regards to the decision, but I have not heard back. So as far as his thoughts on the censure and the second resolution, banning, asking to ban him from City Hall, we don't know what his response is right now. All right, Caitlin Knapp, reporter for KXLY over in Spokane. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Still to come, has President Biden had his we got bin Laden moment. The U.S. conducts an airstrike that takes out an ISIS leader. Retired General Barry McCaffrey joins us when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. Here's Elisa Jaffe. President Biden says the leader of ISIS has been killed in an overnight raid in Syria. U.S. Special Forces carried out that attack. Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qureshi was killed along with 12 others, reportedly including women and children. There were numerous calls made uh, uh, to encourage everyone in the building to leave. Numerous calls were made. Um, And uh, at some point, uh, not too far into the operation, uh, Abdullah exploded this device. That's Pentagon spokesman John Kirby. Joining us on the Northwest Newsline is military analyst and retired four-star General Barry McCaffrey. Would the U.S. have preferred to get him out alive for intelligence, or do they prefer him dead? Oh, I think there's no question I'd rather have captured him alive. Many of these ISIS fighters, Al-Qaeda fighters, other terrorists, when isolated from their surrounding structure, actually will give up intelligence. And more importantly, in this case, when he put set off this gigantic bomb, that wasn't a a vest bomb. It was something bigger. He might must uh, well have destroyed a lot of the documentary intelligence or cell phones, that kind of thing that we like to seize and exploit. So too bad to include the loss of his uh, family members. And too bad because they've also probably lost a lot of information, computers and documents, like you're saying. Yeah, although it's astonishing how quickly and effectively they do forensic 
investigations on a uh, site and exploit it and get it back into the cloud and then turn it around and start running other operations quickly. One other thing probably worth mentioning, you know, there's frequently the notion, well, we kill these guys and 10 more people step forward. But some of that is nonsense. With a secretive organization, with one that has to try and attempt to keep their uh, leadership team hidden and alive. When we knock off one of these people, they then have to reconstitute the leadership network. And while they're doing that, we're trying to find them, listen to what they're up to, etc. So I think this was a, a very effective, bold move on President Biden and Secretary Austin's part and will reap benefits the, for the American people. One of these groups, Al-Khurasan group, in that village was actually plotting actively to attack the U.S. And this person was a part of that? Hard to say. You know, the scorecard in that tiny area of Syria with Kurdish allies, with al-Qaeda, with one of the uh, al-Qaeda factions split off from main al-Qaeda. And then on top of that, there's ISIS. So the big deal on this one, though, was the ISIS leader and his deputy were decapitated and they run operations in both Syria and Iraq. So they were they were a big threat. Explain the precision of this raid and how dangerous was it? I've seen a lot of fighting and I'm always just astonished when I go in and out of Afghanistan or Iraq. I'd always go to the tier one counterterrorism forces, Army Delta, 160th Aviation Regiment, the Navy SEALs, etc. They are so incredibly capable and well-trained and have such magic technology to include things like stealth helicopters, which I assume is the one they destroyed on the ground was a stealth helicopter. So uh, their ability to carry things off in the dark, uh, 7,000 miles from the United States, and to do so with no U.S. casualties is astonishing. Why would they blow up that helicopter? First of all, we never want to leave equipment that could be exploited by an enemy force on the ground. I I attacked into Iraq with an army division and had to blow up two M1 tanks that got irrevocably stuck in thick swamp area. So, but in this case, uh, that those helicopters may well have been the stealth model, but certainly would have had very sensitive communications equipment, et cetera, on it. So they wouldn't want to have let it on the ground. And trying to recover a helicopter, which we routinely do, you know, in benign environments, it it would not be feasible in the middle of Syria. So they got the head of the snake, but do you have to worry about other elements who are very angry about this move by the United States? Well, they may be angry, but they're, you know, I can't imagine there's a big crowd of people volunteering to be the the new leader of ISIS. We regularly take these uh, folks out, and that has been instrumental to mitigating the external threat to the United States and, and Europe. I mean, there, it's not accidental that we haven't had a dozen 9-11 attacks since the original one. And it's a combination of local and state law enforcement, of federal law enforcement. of But overseas, it's where we find them. We try and get the local country to arrest them. If they won't arrest them, we go in and kill them. And that's been a, a big part of protecting the American people. Retired four-star general and military analyst Barry McCaffrey. Thank you, sir. Good to be with you. Still to come, an intergovernmental fight over 5G cell phone service and company leaders get an earful. 
when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pojla. Well, could your cell phone crash your plane? Well, we've heard a lot about that. Every time you get on a plane, they want you to put it in airplane mode, shut it off, or otherwise not have any signals coming from it. But now 5G cell phone service is causing a bit of a headache. Congressman Rick Larson, in fact, has begun an investigation into the troubled rollout of 5G cell phone service. Washington Democrat chairs the aviation subcommittee. The aviation industry has expressed concerns about 5G interference as far back as 2015. Now, the worry is that Verizon and AT&T towers could interfere with aircraft altimeters during landing, and those concerns weren't addressed until now. Let's go back at least seven years when the FCC decided to auction off parts of the electromagnetic spectrum that weren't being used. The frequencies that they gave Verizon and AT&T are very close to the frequencies used by those altimeters. Now, the altimeters in a standard jet aircraft put out about one watt. The power of a 5G cell phone tower can be hundreds, if not thousands of times that. So interference is a significant concern. And if that interference causes the altimeters to give faulty or erroneous readings, it could have devastating effects on a plane that is trying to land, particularly in foggy or adverse conditions. But it appears the Federal Aviation Administration's concerns were not heard by the Federal Communications Commission. Garrett Graves is the ranking member on the House Aviation Subcommittee. We saw two very capable agencies, or three if you include NTIA, just simply sit here and and play chicken with one another. And he says that is inexcusable. Something that was entirely preventable. Now in that hearing, representatives from both the airline and the cell phone industries were grilled by lawmakers, as was the administrator of the FAA. No one from the FCC showed up to the meeting, calling it a scheduling error. For the time being, some Verizon and AT&T 5G towers near airports have been shut down. T-Mobile is not affected as it uses a far different frequency. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows such as Northwest News This Week and Life Beat with Marina Rockinger. All are available on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelip. Thank you for listening and have a good week.